0: We're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter number three. But before uh, we jump into the sermon, I want to say a word about this afternoon. We had a fall festival uh, planned. I saw the weather. I just canceled it. The weather looks great. Just blame me. My fault. My bad. Um, but more importantly, we just didn't want to waste money. We didn't want to waste resources. And we do have something else that's coming up. Uh, this week, you'll get an email from the church where we're going to do a Thanksgiving outreach. Uh, we're going to pick some, uh, some families in the community uh, who are in need of some food assistance. If you know of some folks who are in need, please uh, feel free to... Bring those names to our attention. But the Sunday uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to have an opportunity to come together as to a church. We're gonna, um, the church is going to provide uh, turkeys and chicken and the whole deal. Um, and then members of our church are going to provide green beans casserole, whatever. Um, it, all that'll be um, in the in the email this week. But the most important thing um, I want to do is. I want, our members of our, I want members of our church, we want to go out in teams, and we want to give the boxes out together as an opportunity to serve and pray for people. Uh, it's going to cause some of us to step outside of our comfort zone, but it's going to be really good because it's an opportunity for us to tangibly uh, serve our community. So the Sunday uh, before Thanksgiving, just plan to be here for. The rest of the day. Uh, we'll have service. We'll have some pizza in the fellowship hall. We'll put the boxes together, and then we're going to strategically break up into teams, and we will go out and give the boxes out in the community. So I hope that you are going to be with us. And I know students may not be here because of fall break or what have you, but if you're available, just go ahead and put that on your calendar. The Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, you'll be with your church family from 11 to 7 just, just let the Lord lead you, so it, it, it'll be a while. Well, Eleven on, and we'll have a great day serving together. Uh, this morning, let's look at Luke chapter number three, verses one through nine. Luke chapter number three. The scripture declares, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip the Tetrarch of the region of Itteria and Trichonitis, and Licinius, uh, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went out into the region around, around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, just for a few moments this morning, I want to preach a very simple subject. Matter. I want to talk about a divine appointment in the desert. A divine appointment in the desert. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that while we are broken people and while we've been planted in broken places. God, you still give us divine appointments. God, you still meet with us. You still allow your word to come to us. God, I pray that this morning that you would allow a message to come from uh, not a man or not even just from a pastor, but I pray that we would receive a word from the Lord. That you would speak to us in such a way, God, that you would Remind us of your love for us, but also remind us of the profound calling that you have on the life of every Christian, not just the calling for preachers or the calling for uh, elders and deacons, God, but for the calling of the believer to carry your word in a very similar way, God, to prepare the way of the Lord. God, thank you for the privilege that you give us to prepare the way. Thank you for the privilege that you give us to be able to introduce others to Jesus. God, let us know that that is not a pie-in-the-sky idea, God, but that is a picture of the Christian life. That is a picture of what you want to see and do in us, but also through us. Bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So a couple of years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of building a house. Uh, We picked a lot. uh, We designed the floor floor plan. We picked out the colors and the finishes. And after we picked out everything and finalized the plans, we received a building permit from the city. Uh, That was probably the best thing and worst thing that happened in the process, because in my mind, I thought that since uh, the plans had been picked, since the permit had been granted, since everything was ready, I thought that the work would begin, but then I was faced with a hard reality of waiting. I remember getting the permit. I remember uh, getting ready, getting excited, going out uh, to take pictures. And I showed up the, the, the day after we got the permit. Wasn't no work happening. Next day, wasn't nothing happening. A week passed. Two weeks passed. And I had to, well, humbly, I wish I could say I waited a couple of weeks to call my builder. But every day I would call him and I would ask him, bro, what are you doing? I'm paying you. Like, what's up, bro? And I can remember him telling me, Thomas, we've got to take the time to prepare the lot. We've got to take the time to make sure that the house is going to be sitting in the right place that you want. He said, Thomas, if we don't take time to prepare for the building process, the building process would not go the way you want it to. Really, that's the mindset that we need to approach when we look at Luke chapter number 3. Uh, God has revealed his plan. God has picked his messenger. God has picked his forerunner to prepare. But unfortunately for us, there is a significant season of waiting. Uh, when you look at the text, when you look at uh, the passage through the lens of Scripture or the, through the lens of a chronological order, you will see that the beginning of chapter number two and the beginning of chapter number three, there's probably around 30 years that have passed. At the end of chapter number two to the beginning of chapter number three, there's probably at least 18 years that have passed. In chapter number two, we hear about Jesus as a young person in the temple, and we know that his ministry did not start until he was in his 30s, so you see that there is a significant amount of time that has passed, which means that the people would have had to wait. The people would have had to have a season of waiting, a season of waiting on God to prepare, not just the way, but catch this, the Lord had to take the time to prepare the messenger. God was going to send John to prepare the way, but before John could prepare the way, God took some time to prepare John to be the messenger. It's a reminder for every Christian. It's a reminder for every believer that the Lord, before he will use you, will take time to prepare you. All of us, we want to instantly go into what God has called us to. We want to instantly be where we are. We want to instantly get to the end of the story. But I want to encourage you this morning that there's going to be some times in your life where the Lord has to cause you to wait and prepare before God uses you. Uh, Many times, God will call us to a wilderness experience, and in that wilderness experience, God has to get your attention, and God has to minister to you first before you can minister to anyone else. Um, It it doesn't matter what aspect of life you find this. It it is true. Um, Before a team plays a season, there is a preseason of preparation. Uh, before a woman has a baby, there's a season of preparation where the baby has to grow inside the womb. Um, financially, there's a season of preparing for, fi- for our finances. Like in every area of life, you will see that there is a season of preparation. It does not matter if it's a spiritual person or a non-spiritual person, a believer or unbeliever. There's no one in life that has instant success. There's no one in life who does not uh, who skips past the season of preparation. And in our text, we see a man who God was going to use greatly. We see a servant who God was going to use to prepare the way for Christ. But before God prepares the way uh, through John, God takes time to minister and to prepare John in a place called the wilderness. There's a lot of us here today who have significant dreams, significant visions, you have uh, significant thoughts that God has placed upon your heart. But I want to encourage you this morning, before God will use you to prepare that way, God will call you to be in a desert place. Because if God does not prepare you, you will never be able to be in a position where you are prepared to be used of God. When you look at the text, first we see after After the divine appointment in the desert, we see uh, the text tell us about the political climate of the day. Uh, Verse number one says, once again, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea. In the opening verses of the chapter, Luke gives us some context in terms of the time and the historical mark uh, where Jesus and John began their ministry. John begins his public ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. The Caesars were uh, the rulers of the Roman world. Beneath the Caesars were the governors. uh, Here in the context, it's Pontius Pilate. And beneath Pilate, there was these men called Tetrarchs. They ruled the regions. Not only does Luke Introduce the political hierarchy of the day, but he also gives us a a picture of the the religious hierarchy as well. In verse number two, we see uh, that the priesthood um, was led by Annas and Caiaphas. Luke gives us the entire civil and religious order of the day. Luke is telling us about the political and cultural climate of the day. He's telling us that they are living in a season uh, of suffering. They are living in a season of silence and they're living in a season of darkness. We know that there was silence because there was something called the intertestamental period between uh, the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. There were several hundred years where God did not send a prophet. There was silence essentially from the Lord. Uh, John's ministry begins during a time where people had not Openly heard a word from the Lord. Uh, The priests and the procurators were trying to vow for power while the people desperately needed a leader. They needed a spiritual leader, so there was silence there, but there was also darkness. Under uh, Tiberius, his reign was marked uh, by cruelty and treachery. Uh, The region was broken. Uh, The culture was marked by paganism. Uh, The the people were marked by morally corrupt leaders. Uh, The system was corrupt. It was broken. And I want you to catch this. God made a decision to plant the gospel into a broken place. God made a decision to plant the gospel in a place where there were morally corrupt leaders, where there were imperfect leaders. God makes a decision to plant the gospel in a place where it was needed most. I think I need to say a word here about how and why God plants the gospel. It's easy for us as, as uh, believers in 2019 to think that because of our culture... Uh, because of our moral decline, that the gospel is no longer relevant. It's easy for us to think that if we had more uh, godly leadership, if we had a culture that was more affirming of Christian values, that it would be easier for us to preach the gospel. It would be easier for us to make an impact on the world. I want to stop you and say, say it this way. This is not a country that is more ungodly than the old country. We're not living in a a time where this country is more ungodly today than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I know that offends some people, but let me just go in and make it clear. We live in a day and time where our culture says that, oh my God, abortion, oh my God, homosexuality. These things are just so morally corrupt, I cannot understand how and why God would allow these things to happen. As if to say... That we used to live in a time, we used to live in a country that was devoid of more corruptness. That we used to live in a time that was devoid of sin. I want to just put this out here. There's never been a time in this country where sin was not rampant and prevalent. If you don't think that's true, just look at it from this perspective. Go back 50 years when people in this country did not have their rights. We weren't slaves, but we didn't all have the right to vote. Go back... 150 years or 200 years in this country, in these United States of America, when people could own another person. Like if we think that the days we're living in today are more corrupt than those days, you do not understand sin and you do not understand the gospel. There has never been a time in this country, there's never been a time in this world when we did not need the gospel. I, I want to say it this way. Since the fall, since sin entered the world, there has never been a time where the gospel was more or less needed than it is right now. If we think that because of certain sins that we have not, um, if we think that because certain sins are more prevalent that, that offend us, if we think that the gospel is more needed now or less needed now, then we, we, we miss the understanding that God has a perspective of sin different than us. When God sees the world, God sees a world that is broken. God sees a world that is in need of a Savior. And if we don't see it from that perspective, we don't understand the true gospel message. The gospel was not needed. Uh, The gospel is always needed because the gospel message is what transforms lives. Because of sin and because of brokenness, the reality of it is, light will always have its greatest impact in places that are dark. I want to say it again. If you think that you just need to be on this island to yourself, if you need to be just secluded and separated with only believers, you don't understand the power of God's light on your life. And yes, as as believers, the church is the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. Yes, we are to be together. Yes, we are to shine our light for God's glory. Yes, when we come together, this place should be bright. It should be shining because we are here to magnify and glorify the Lord. One of the greatest things about this place is the more we come together, the more we magnify, the more we glorify the Lord. It is amazing for us to be together. It's amazing for us to do life together, to be challenged by one another, to be encouraged by one another. That is amazing for us. Us to be able to do that together. But we need to leave this place. We need to leave the four walls of this building. We need to leave and understand that God desires for us to be light in the midst of dark places. God desires for us to shine our light so that he can receive honor and glory. Go with me quickly to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew 5 verse 13 simply says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love Matthew 5 because it reminds us to let our light shine, catch this, so that everyone can see we're right and they're wrong. It says, let your light shine so that you can put people down. Let your light shine so that you can judge people and they can feel guilty. Uh, Let your light shine so that you can beat people up to build yourself up of course it does not say that. The text tells us we are to shine our light, catch this, so that God can be glorified. Anytime we shine our light, anytime, whether we're together or separate, anytime you shine the light of the gospel, it gives God glory. Anytime You and I make a decision to live in such a way where the world understands that our identity is found in Christ, where people understand that the gospel has transformed and saved our life. It brings God honor and glory. And that's what life should be about. We want to make life about our honor, about our glory, about our fame, about magnifying ourselves when the text is telling us that the gospel is needed because we always have a need to bring God more honor And more glory. So first we see the the political and spiritual climate. It was brokenness. But secondly, we see in verse 2 a personal call. Verse 2 says again, then the priesthood of Annas uh, and Caiaphas, the word of God, came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. In the opening of verses of chapter 3, Luke gives us the entire civil and religious order uh, of the day. Uh, under uh, Roman occupation, we are, to, we are left to think that the gospel uh, probably should have gone to the movers and the shakers of the day. It should have gone to the power brokers of the day. Uh, most of us think that the word of the Lord should have came uh, to the priest. It should have came uh, to, to a Caesar, but God's word came to, Jan, to John, the son of Zechariah. It's interesting to me to follow uh, the gospel uh, throughout Luke, and you will always see how the word of God or the revelation usually comes to the little people. It comes to the nobodies of the Bible. It comes to those who've been forgotten about and those who are left out, those who are forsaken. It doesn't come to the Caesars or even the priest. It goes to the shepherds in the field. It goes uh, to the poor peasant girls. It goes uh, to the old couple, uh, to the couple that everyone had forgotten about. And you look, when you look at the text, it's a reminder that God's word comes to Zechariah, a man who does not love the world, a man who does not follow the world, and one who is living in The wilderness. Uh, There is a key phrase in the text that we must consider. Actually, two key phrases in the text. First, it is God's word came to John. That phrase is consistent with the prophets of the Old Testament. Secondly, the word came in the wilderness. Oftentimes, God sends his servants into the wilderness to prepare them for work in the ministry. By reading verse number two, we know that John was not sitting Uh, At home thinking, man, people need to hear me preach. Man, I bet I could draw a big old crowd. Man, people will will be blessed by my sermon. Man, I know I can preach better than that guy, Thomas. Man, I know the world is waiting to hear what I have to say. They're going to love my clothes. They're going to love my diet. They're going to love everything about me. No, John does not say any of those things. John is one who would be uh, so impacted by what he had received from the Lord that he wanted to speak to others about the Lord. He, He follows the pattern of Scripture. He follows the pattern of God using people. The word does not come from himself, but the word comes from the Lord. And before he could speak, he had to have something to say that was from God. We look at the scriptures, before Jeremiah spoke, the word came to him. Before Zephaniah spoke, the word came to him. Before Mary gave her magnificence, the word came to her. When you look at the text, when you look at the passage, we got to understand that he had a word from the Lord. But he got the word from the Lord, catch this, when he was living separate from the world. i it again. He did not get a word from the Lord until he separated himself from the world. That is true for every preacher. That is true for everyone who carries the gospel message that we must separate ourselves from the world to hear a word from the Lord. But catch this, that is also true for every believer. You will not hear from the Lord until you separate yourself from the world. You will not hear from the Lord until you are willing to make sacrifices in your life to disconnect from the world so that you can hear more clearly from God. That's hard. That's uncomfortable. That, that, that's, really, that's really something that's countercultural because we want to be connected to the culture. We want to be connected to the people. We don't want uh, to have a moment that is not filled with time. We uh, want to text. We want to be on Instagram. We want to be on Facebook. We want to be on Twitter. We want to fill our time and space with stuff. And a lot of times we fill our time and space with so much stuff that we don't make space to hear from the Lord. We don't make space to appreciate when God is calling us away to speak to us. We don't appreciate how God calls us, calls us away to prepare us. We don't appreciate how God can speak to us in a profound and significant way. I, I know you're, you're, you're probably thinking, like, T, like, the, the way has been prepared for Jesus already. Like, John the Baptist has fulfilled his role. Like, what are you talking about? I want to encourage you with this every time. Every time you open up God's word, that's an opportunity for God's word to come to you. Like when, when we have a, a men's group text. Uh, we have a 545 men's group. You are welcome to come if you are committed to coming. 545 every Tuesday we're here at church. We got a little group. It's amazing to me how I get texts from people, from men in our church, uh, who, who are just, man, I was reading the scripture today, and God spoke this to me. Not just even the men in church, even some of the sisters in our church. They sent out texts. They say, you know, I had this Bible study, I had this quiet time. And it encourages my heart to know that independent of my sermon, independent of this building, God's word can still come to you, catch this, if you are willing to separate yourself and spend time alone with God. Many of us cannot speak for the Lord because we haven't taken time to hear from the Lord. I'm not talking about preaching in a sermon. I'm not talking about preaching in a pulpit. I'm not talking about planting a church. I'm talking about as a believer, before you speak, you need to be spoken to. Before you have something to say, you got to allow God to give you something to say. And in the text, we see that before he spoke, uh, he was spoken to by the Lord. And one of the reasons why I love um, the, the, the Gospel of Luke is it is consistently reminding me how God chooses to use people differently than how the world would use people. Uh, even in the church today, we are enamored with powerful people. We are enamored with celebrities, with those who are rich, those who are famous. That's why uh, we get so excited when an entertainer or an athlete becomes a Christian. Side note, has anybody downloaded Christ the King? Kanye's new album? Don't tell me Brother Larry's the only one who downloaded it. My man, thank you. Like, I love that, that Kanye is celebrating Jesus. Every, every interview I've seen, it seems as if he's had a, a, a genuine Christ conversion. It seems as if he has sincerely placed his faith and his trust in Christ. That's amazing to me, but catch this. It's not more amazing because he's an entertainer, it's not more amazing because he's a celebrity, it's not more amazing because he uh, has millions of followers. Uh, As believers, yes, we should always celebrate any time a person comes to Christ. But catch this, if we celebrate Kanye coming to Jesus more than the poor person, more than the unknown person, more than the homeless person, more than the nobodies. If we celebrate him more than others, then we've missed sight. We've lost sight of how God values and how God uses people. I love First Corinthians chapter number one, verse 26 and 29. It says, For consider your calling, brothers or sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring forth, bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might be able to boast in the presence of God. God uses the most unlikely vessels. That's a good word for me as a pastor. That that God did not pick me because of my noble birth or because of my oratorical ability. God did not pick me because I was special. But God chose to pick me and use me because He wanted to show his power, and his strength through my life. So first we see in the text the political and spiritual uh, climate of the day. Then we see the personal calling of a man. But then lastly, we see the preaching content of the messenger. We see in verse uh, number three, uh, uh, verse number three simply says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You see right here in the text, verse three summarizes the ministry of John. I love it because he doesn't do it the way the world would do it. If you look at the text, no modern church would pick John as their pastor. No pastoral search committee would entertain John as a candidate. No leading church uh, growth model would say follow the model of John. Here's his model. John says, first, uh, I'm going to go to a place where nobody is. He says, I'm going to pick the most uncomfortable place where people are not going to be convenient. He says, I'm going to go to the wilderness, and if people come, I'm not even going to give them a place to sit. I'm not going to build a building. I'm going to meet outside. Secondly, he says, I'm going to dress in a way that's unattractive. He says, I'm going to avoid all the trends. John is like, I'm going to be a weirdo on purpose. Thirdly, he says, I'm going to speak offensively as I can. I'm going to be as confrontational as I can. He says, I'm going to try to insult everybody who's listening to me verbally and theologically. He says, there's going to be an assault. And he says, catch this, I'm going to make sure that every high official that, is, that hears me preach knows that I think that they have no integrity. And he says, I'm going to encourage the people to follow somebody and stop following me. I'm kind of exaggerating here, but when you look at it, no one would have picked to do the ministry the way John chose to do it. I love John's ministry because, catch this, John had one good sermon. John had one faithful sermon. And the truth is, God only gives us one sermon. Just so you know, as your pastor, my goal is to not be cool, my goal is not to be creative. I have one goal when I stand here. My one goal is to be clear about the gospel. My one goal is to expose you to the truth of the gospel. Every time we come together, whether I'm preaching or a guest is preaching, my goal is that we have an opportunity to be exegetically escorted through the text so that you are not going to be transformed by the truth of the text not transformed by Thomas's opinion, not transformed by a new program, not transformed or entertained. But our goal is to be so exposed to Jesus that we will be transformed. We catch the, the understanding that if you are um, exposed um, to radiation, if you are exposed uh, to something toxic, it will have an impact on you. Like I hope and pray. That you are, so, you are so exposed to Christ. That you are so exposed to the Bible. That you are so exposed with the truth that is here in the text. If you left out of here and there was a test, that, that, that there would be a, 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 a clear indication that you had been in the presence of Jesus. Not in the presence of a person. Not in the presence of a, a church building. My goal is to keep us in the presence of Jesus. John is preaching about repentance and faith, about repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, catch this, is not simply um, what you're turning from. Repentance is what you're turning to. Repentance means a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. I want you should look at it this way: Sin is like a city we love to visit. We love going to that city because it's fun, because it's tempting. And it's exciting. Even Hebrews 11 tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season. Sin is fun. Like if sin was not tempting, it would not be a temptation. But after we place our faith in Christ, and after we have a change of heart, the believer gets to a place where we place sin in the rearview mirror. We still love it. We still enjoy it. We still desire it, but catch this, we are no longer pursuing it. That's the difference. A believer still has temptation. A believer still has struggles. A believer still desires to go visit the city. But a believer is one who is no longer pursuing the sin of the city. We are pursuing the Savior who removed the desire and removed the power of the sin from our life. When you think about it from this perspective, catch this. In those moments when we struggle, in those moments when we have to fight sin, We have to rest in the the reality that we've been forgiven because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. When I struggle with sin, I struggle knowing I am loved. I struggle knowing I am accepted. I struggle knowing I am no longer a slave to sin because of what Christ has accomplished for me. I am now a son or a daughter of God. I'm no longer expected to perform for God or to impress God. I'm now called to trust God. And a part of trusting God, catch this, is pursuing God. A part of you trusting God is is a desire and a decision to pursue God. Repentance is good. Turning away from sin is important. But I I want to tell you what's more important. For you to be the man or the woman that God's called you to be. For us to be the fathers or the mothers that God has called us to be. For us to be the husbands or the wives that God has called us to be. It's not simply what we're turning from. It's what we're turning to. I remember about a year and a half ago when I started my weight loss journey. True story. I immediately gave up uh, chicken, beef, and pork. Immediately. That meant that you know, no more hot wings. Uh, no more Philly cheese steaks. No more bacon. I easily went off of it. But I was still eating bad stuff. I would tell myself. Okay, I'm not gonna eat chicken, beef, or pork, but I was eating a bunch of french fries. Like, it was so stupid, right? Like, <laughs> like I, I, was, I was replacing something bad for bad, right? My life did not begin to change until I substituted, until I not only turned away from the chicken, beef, or pork that was unhealthy, but I started replacing it with things that, are, that were healthy. I started eating kale and eating broccoli, started taking vitamins, and started drinking smoothies that looked like. Somebody went outside and got some grass and blended it up. <laughs> and the more I began to pursue that, the more my life began to change. As believers, the same is true. I'm thankful, I'm proud of you that you are no longer doing certain things. I'm proud of you, I'm thankful that you're no longer hanging out with certain people or living by certain principles. But catch this, good is not good enough when God expects better. The better that God expects is your pursuit the better that God expects is, is you pursuing the Lord. So i got to ask this question this morning. Uh, n- not, not to put you on the spot, but to help us all grow. Now that you've turned away from sin, what are the things that you are constantly turning to? Like, what are you turning to? This morning, Like, like, what are you, I know you've turned away from sin, but what have you turned to? My question is, like, what you're turning to, is it found in the bottle or is it found in the body of Christ? Like, what are you turning to? Is it found in the world or is it found in God's word? Is it marked by love from God and love for God or is it marked by lust from the world and the lust of the world? Am I searching the scriptures for truth? Am I turning to brothers and sisters and community for godly accountability Am I turning to prayer as a priority? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? The question i got to ask myself is this. Thomas, what are you turning to? I know you've turned away from sin. I know that you're no longer going certain places and hanging out with certain people, and that's good. But God expects something else for us to have repentance and faith, to have repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7 continues, it says, And he said, therefore, to the crowds, that you came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And now the axe is laid on the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So to catch this, In characterizing his hearers as vipers, he's saying they were like snakes fleeing, uh, fleeing from a brush fire. But catch this. They were trying to escape, but they had no intention of changing. They were trying to escape the heat, but they had no desire for their nature to be changed. Is that not us? I don't want to get burned by the fire. I don't want to change my character, though. I don't want the Lord to change my heart. I just don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get caught. I don't want to face the consequences. I don't want the Lord to transform my life. I just don't want to get burned. That is us. That is you and I because the majority of us, when I say the majority of us, I'm 100% talking about me. I just don't want to get burned. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own way. I want to live in such a way where I can enjoy the fruit of sin without the consequences of sin. And in the text, the passage is telling us that we are fooling ourselves if we think that that is pleasing to the Lord. In the text, they thought that because they were in the line of Abraham. They thought that because they were in the family of God by race that they were okay. When in reality that just because they were descendants of Abraham did not make them okay. Just because they were a part of the family from a a natural standpoint, they thought they were okay. There's a lot of us who were raised in the church, and because my mom was a Christian, and my dad was a Christian, and my grandma was a Christian, I think that that makes me a Christian. That's called cultural Christianity. That is not uh, a relationship with the Lord. In the text, it's telling us that we, all, we are called to not just have a, a proclamation of faith, but we are called to produce fruit that confirms our faith. That's why Matthew 7, verse 16, simply says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs or thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. We're not here to, to judge you in a sense of um, placing you on a higher level if you have more fruit or, or, or less fruit. But here's what we're here to do. We're here to remind you that your life speaks for you. My life, not my words, my life speaks for me. What's produced from my life speaks to my faith. What's produced from my life speaks to who's in control of my life. And in the text, it's a reminder that God does inspect the fruit of our life. For every believer, the goal is that true repentance will first produce the fruit of my character. That's that love, that joy, that peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But then secondly, it should produce the fruit of action. The fruit where I am willing, catch this, to not just turn from something, but I am willing to turn to someone, and that someone is Jesus. My time is up. I'll end with this quickly. When you think about the desert, when you think about what happened to John in the desert, we got to remember that he was coming because of divine authority. He was sent from God. He was on divine assignment. It was not just his assignment, but we got to understand that we all have an assignment. Like if you're a believer, if you have a relationship with God, you are on divine assignment from the Lord. But secondly, you will also see that he has personal integrity. Didn't put up a front, didn't put up a show. He was real. And catch this, and we're going to talk about this more next week. He was simple. There was simplicity in him. He was one to prepare the way. and He was one who was willing to get out of the way. We're going to talk about this more next week. If we don't get out of the way, then we spoil the way. Like, as as believers, we got to be so committed that I want to get out of the way so that I don't spoil the way. I want to declare God's way. I want to declare God's plan so much so that I don't get in the way. Chris, you can come on up. We're done this morning. We have three points of very simple application this morning. When you think about the text, Think about the three points that we talked about today. First thing we got to understand and recognize is this. We've got to ask ourselves, where has God planted you? Question for everybody. Where has God planted you? you probably sitting here thinking, like, dang, will he stop with this planted me stuff? Will he stop asking me this? I'm not going to stop asking. Number one, because you don't listen to me, right? Half the stuff I say is forgotten about before you get on Taliesin Road, right? So I got to keep repeating myself, right? But also, I'm saying it, and I say that jokingly. I got to say that because God has planted you right where you are, and God wants to use you right where you are. I don't care where it is. It could be as a stay-at-home mom. It could be um, as a working mom. It could be in full-time ministry. It could be in law enforcement. It could be in the medical field. It could be in teaching. I don't know where it is. But we need to understand that God has strategically planted me in a rough place, and that is where the gospel is needed. So first, where has God planted you? And secondly, where will you turn? I know we're turning away from sin. I know we understand those big bad sins we can't do anymore. I get it. I think a better question is though: Not are you? Here's here's how I got to talk to myself, right? You're not, you're not beating your wife. You're not cheating on your wife. You're not stealing money from the church. And it's easy for me to get comfortable in that versus me saying, Thomas, what are you turning to? Thomas, what are you pursuing? Like, Thomas, are you giving God your whole heart? Thomas, are you, are you pursuing a stronger relationship with your wife? Are you pursuing a stronger relationship with your kids? Are you investing in them? Thomas, what are you turning to? Because if I just think it's good enough to, to not sin bad I'll never be the husband the father or the follower that Jesus has called me to be so I gotta identify where am I turning to and then lastly what is your life producing the last two are pretty much tied together what you turn to will impact what you produce If I am not willing to turn to the Lord, my life will not produce anything that's honoring to the Lord. But if I'm willing to turn to the Lord and pursue the Lord, my life will produce something that's honoring and glorifying to the Lord.